Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. Thank you for joining me today. I've got my friend Jeff Verdorn in the studio this hour, so you know it's going to be a good hour of uh, teaching, and we're going to continue our series on who is this Jesus. I bet we're up to about part nine, I'm guessing, um, eight or nine. We're going to do a little bit of review and then continue on the teachings of Jesus. So this is going to be a great hour. Jeff is a Bible teacher and longtime friend of mine, and always glad to have him here. Hello, Hi, Jeff. Bill. Good to have you here. Let's do some review from last time. Well, we are in this series. I think it is part nine of this series. And we the last time we entered into this kind of this subtopic of the teachings of Jesus, and I had broke the teachings of Jesus down into seven different categories or themes or topics. And, it, you know, you could debate how you categorize all the teachings of Jesus. There's a lot of them. They're all significant. I was going to say I tried to gather the significant teachings of Jesus, but arguably they're all significant teachings of Jesus. Uh, But it was just a way to go through, when I taught this class for the first time, just a way to go through the different teachings of Jesus. So the first category was this idea of repent for the kingdom of God is near. And we studied what it means, the gospel of the kingdom, versus the gospel of grace that Paul taught. And so we looked at um, uh, the gospel of the kingdom, which basically focuses on that the kingdom had come to earth. Jesus, the king, uh, has come to earth. The cross and the resurrection were, were actually not part of this gospel of the kingdom, as opposed to the gospel of grace that Paul teaches after the resurrection does have at its heart the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, The gospel of the kingdom is that the king has come to earth. The gospel of grace is that we can become citizens of the kingdom, of the heavenly kingdom. And then we also talked a little bit about that one day, Revelation 19 describes this Jesus coming back to earth on his white horse with what's on his side, the title, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he will finally come and rule and reign, and we will finally have a perfect, righteous government. Doesn't that sound pretty good tonight? (laughs) It sure does. Yeah. So that will be the day when we will actually rule with him. The second topic that we covered was this idea of the teaching of come, follow me. Jesus said, come, follow me, and I will send you out and make you fishers of men. And so we looked at the idea, what does it mean to be fishers of of men, and we looked at several different um, characteristics or titles, if you would, of people who are Christians who should be going out and sharing truth with people. So things like ambassador, fisherman, witnesses, uh, firefighters, newscasters. We are to testify to the truth, and so on. Uh, but we also looked at the Great Commission, that we are supposed to go into all the world making disciples of all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the, and the Holy Ghost. Um, we are supposed to learn about God and teach these things 
to others. That is what being a disciple is, and that was what making disciples is all about. Uh, so come follow me. We talked about that. And then the last category we got to last time was this category I call I am. And so what are all the teachings related to Jesus declaring himself to be I am? We looked at the history of this name, I am, and we saw that uh, this was this fun word that we looked at last time, the tetragrammaton, this four-letter name of God, I am. So when Moses came uh, to God in the burning bush and he asked God what his name was, who shall I say sent me? God said, tell them, I am sent you. And that has become God's name. That pronounced properly is probably Yahweh. And so that's where we get the Yahweh. In fact, Jesus's name is the Lord saves uh, and is a play on that. But Jesus said multiple times the phrase, I am. So one of the things we looked at was the seven I am statements of Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6, which is probably one of the most um, significant passages in all of Scripture that says there's one way to God, there's one road, there's one gate, and that is through the person of Jesus Christ. And finally, John 15, I am the vine. Now here's, and then, by the way, we ended on this great scene in the Garden of Gethsemane when they come to arrest Jesus, and he basically asks, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus, and he says, I am. (laughs) And 200 people fall over backwards at the name, the covenant name, this I am name of God. It It was an awesome, awesome scene. You just threw that number out. We don't know if it was 200, but it was probably a, they called it a detachment. So we don't know specifically what that number is. But we'd, we'd, it's not specified in Scripture, but it was a large group of people. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I'm just I, to, I, I heard that someplace. Didn't you trying, tell me it was 200 at one time? Well, I, I heard that in a, a detachment um, is upwards of 600 to 1,000, but they probably sent more of like a, a SWAT team of highly <laughs> qualified soldiers. And that, that group could have been 100 to 200. Yeah, because he was so dangerous, you know, this so, guy. So Jesus. dangerous, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so let's continue with this theme of Jesus saying the I am with some of the other teachings of basically his declaration that he is the I am, that he is God in the flesh. Um, I remember I was on a, a trip, a vacation. We were down in Mexico with my wife for my anniversary, and we went on the, one of these boat excursions. And I don't know how I got into this conversation with the couple that was on the boat with us. Uh, But we started talking about Jesus and what he claimed. And she finally says, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. And I said, well, actually, he did. And so I I mentioned John 10. So here's what John 10 says about those who were around Jesus and what they thought he claimed to be. So the Jews uh, there were gathered around him. This is John 10, verse 24. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us. And Jesus says, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. Again, the Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you all these good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? And they said, we're not stoning you for any of the good works, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. 
So clearly, the Jews that were around Jesus in his day believed that he claimed to be God, and that's exactly what he did claim. In fact, when he healed the paralytic that was let down from the uh, the roof into the room that he was in, he says, what's harder, to say, get up and walk or to forgive someone of their sin? And he says, but so you know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sin. I say to this man, get up and walk. Mm-hmm. And the Pharisees were incensed because only God has the power to forgive sin. So clearly, Jesus in his teachings was claiming to be God. Another very important passage in this kind of divinity teaching is in John 14, where Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus had just said, I am going away. And if I go away, I will come back and take you to be where I am also. And and poor Thomas, you know, this is doubting Thomas. He had right. some issues after the resurrection yeah. too, right? And he's saying, well, we don't know the way. How do we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's that verse we just mentioned. But he goes on to say that you will know by my Father as well. From now on, you know him and have seen him. You've seen the Father, Jesus is saying. And then Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answers, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And so Jesus is is declaring that if you have seen him in body, in the flesh, the person of Jesus, you have seen God the Father. One more way that Jesus, in his teachings, declared his divinity. One of the other ones that is... uh, significant is in John chapter 5, where Jesus says, truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. There's another one of these I am statements Mm -hmm. again, right? Before Abraham was born, I am. And once again, what was their response? John 5, 59 says that at this, they picked up stones to try to stone him, but Jesus hid himself and slipped away from amongst the temple grounds. He just kind of vanished, Mm. right? And, uh, and disappeared. But once again, he declares that he and the Father is one. So John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. So there are many different teachings like these, like the I am statements, like him declaring that I am the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And later in John chapter 1, we learn that the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. So the Word is God, who is Jesus, who dwelt amongst us. So this is where Christianity gets the idea that the the idea of the divinity of Jesus Christ, we kind of did this back in session two or three, but here we're doing it in the context of the I am statements of Jesus. Mm, Awesome. I think we'll take our first break, but as I take my break... Jeff, I want to say uh, happy birthday to my friend Jay. You know Jay. I do. And it's his birthday today. Happy birthday, Jay. Yeah, there you go. I hope you're listening, Jay, because you're not getting a present from me. That's it. That's it? That's right. <laughs> yeah. He must be a good friend, huh? Yeah, he's yeah. a really good friend. Yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah. All right, we'll be right back with Jeff Redorn if we continue our study on who is this Jesus.
Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. The way they keep on telling me time and time again, boy, you never win. You never win. But the voice of truth Tells me a different story The voice of truth Says do not be afraid And the voice of truth Says this is for my glory Out of all the voices calling out to me Should I talk, Jeff, or just let the song keep playing? I love this song. I know you do. That's Jeff Verdoran's walk-up music. And we're always glad to have Jeff on the show. We're talking about... Uh, his series, Who Is This Jesus? This is episode nine. And we're going to talk today about what does it mean to be born again? So category number four of Jesus's teaching is we're going to go to, to, to John chapter three to set the basis for this. And if you remember, this is where Jesus has an encounter with the Pharisee Nicodemus. So it it's one of the things in the story, it says that it was at night. So Nicodemus obviously saw something in this man, Jesus. He was curious and he wanted to speak to him, but he was afraid of how that might look to all the other Jewish leaders. And so he went to Jesus at night, but he says, Rabbi, I know you are a teacher who has come from God for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. And Jesus says to him, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. This is where we get this phrase, born again. And it, it's this, there's a lot of baggage with this name. I don't know if you remember that uh, President Carter once said that he was a born-again Christian, and he got a lot of flack about it, and there's a lot of people who don't understand what this phrase means. Bottom line is, if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, you have been born again. But unfortunately, I don't think enough Christians truly understand what this phrase, being born again, really means. When you continue on the story, you realize that Nicodemus didn't understand it either. He says, what what do you mean? Do we need to go back into our mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus says, no, you must be born of water, a natural birth, but you must also be born of spirit because spirit gives birth to spirit. And and poor Nicodemus, I don't know that he ever really got this idea of being born again. We are now understand it with the rest of the New Testament revelation. We know that, for example, Paul says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. But I want to talk a little bit about this idea of being born again and what precisely is happening in a person who believes and is saved. In order to do that, I think it's important to understand that man is made up of three components— We are a body, we are a soul, and we are a spirit. Um, I love C.S. Lewis' quote on this. He says, you don't have a soul, you are a soul, you have a body. We tend to think of ourselves in terms of our physical being because we experience our world in a physical way. Our body is a physical body, so we have smell and sight and taste and touch, and this is how we experience the reality in which we dwell in, a physical reality. But what makes you you is not so much your physical body, 
but the immaterial part of you called the soul. In the Greek, that's called your suke. Your, your, and this is where we get the word psychology, which is literally called the, the study of the soul. Your soul is where your mind is, your will, your emotions, your memory. All the things that make you you make up your soul. But there must be a third part of man that is, is an important part that, that answers the question, well, what part of us is born again? What part of us is made of alive in this whole process of becoming a Christian? Paul says, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's the third part of us, a spiritual part of man. Mankind is three parts, body, soul, and spirit. Well, what's our spiritual part? I believe that when Adam was made by God, he was made body, soul, and spirit, and his spirit was alive. It was united with God. But when he ate from the forbidden fruit, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, remember God said that you will surely die if you eat from this fruit. And yet they walked out of the garden. What part of Adam died that day? It was the spiritual part of Adam that died that day. God, who was united with him in spirit, now couldn't be united with Adam because now he was sinful. He had sinned and fallen, and so his spirit died. And every single person that has come after Adam, Adam and Eve, Mm -hmm. has been born spiritually dead. So that is the state of mankind as described in Scripture. So it says, "You, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 4 says we're separated from God. Colossians 1 says we're alienated from God. We are no longer united with God spiritually. We are dead spiritually. Mm. So what happens when we believe and are born again? Well, that's what Jesus said. He said that spirit gives birth to spirit. When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, God forgives you of your sin, cleanses you, His spirit then moves back into your spirit, giving you life. You've moved from death to life, and you are now once again united with God. The spirit gives birth to spirit, and you become spiritually alive. That's a spectacular miracle. It is. Yeah, the the work of the Lord in a person's life, when that happens, is amazing. You know, and then you have your whole life to then live it out. And some people say, well, okay, I've been made alive spiritually. I've been made righteous. I have what is theologians call the imputed righteousness of Christ, but I know I'm not living it out yet. And mm-hmm. we'll talk about that a little bit when we come back mm-hmm. from, from break. Jeff Dorn is my guest. We're continuing our series on who is this Jesus. And we're talking about what does it mean to be born again? It's a great study so far, Jeff. Therefore, if anybody is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come Spirit gives birth to spirit. God has made you alive. So he says, when you are dead in your sins, spiritually dead, and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature in the flesh, God made you alive with Christ. Well, your body didn't come alive. Your soul didn't come alive. That was still there. It's still existent. Mm -hmm. It's the spiritual part of you that comes alive the moment you are born again. That's when it says that he who has the Son has life, spiritual life. He who does not have the Son does not have life because they are spiritually dead. 
So this spiritual part of us is such an important understanding that we are, as people, as men, men and women, three-part beings, body, soul, and spirit. I will say there is, I mean, this is debated within Christianity. There are some who say this is a trichotomous view is what it's called to get theological on us here, that we are a three-part being, body, soul, and spirit. Some say we are only a two-part being, body and soul. There's just one component. There's no, they make no distinction between the soul and the spirit. But then I ask, what died in Adam that day? And what comes alive when you believe in Jesus Christ? If there isn't this spiritual part, and, and one last word, God is a three-part being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are made in the image of God. And I think one of the ways that we are made in the image of God is that we, too, are a three-part being, body, soul, and spirit. Hmm. Very good. Cool. So when God describes this concept— Let's let's start this discussion here, okay? About when we move from death to life. Now we are born again. It's the only kind of Christian there is is a born again Christian. Um, you, you, if you are a Christian, you are born again. But then God says in Galatians two twenty that I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. And so, one of the other hard things to understand for many Christians is, okay, well, what part of me was crucified? What has been crucified in me? I know that Jesus was crucified 2,000 years ago. I don't understand when he says, I have also been crucified with Christ. Well, I think it's that old self, the body, the soul, and the dead spirit. That's the old person. Mm -hmm. The new person is body, soul, and a spirit that's alive and united with God. So there's your two selves. It's the old self with the dead spirit that's been crucified. That is what Paul calls in Ephesians 4, the old self that's been put off. And now you have a new self, body, soul, and a live spirit united with God. And that new self is, is what we has been put on, Paul describes. So, the old self, body, soul, dead spirit has been crucified. You've died with Christ. Don't you know that you've been crucified with Christ, Romans 6 says, and you've been raised with him, this newness of life becoming spiritually alive. All of this language, born again, the old self, the new self, being crucified, being raised with Christ, only makes sense if you understand the spiritual component of man. By the way, animals don't have a spiritual part, right? They have a body. Animals have a soul. If you've ever had a pet or a dog or whatever, you know that your dog has a mind, a will, emotions, memory. That's this. That's the soul part of an animal. But animals don't have a spirit. Hmm. Only man was made in the image of God, body, soul, and spirit. And so there's two types of people in this world. Those whose spirit is dead, separated, alienated from Christ— and those whose spirit have been made alive, been born again, united with Christ. All right. We'll take a break. We'll come back more with Jeff Verdorn as we continue our series on Who Is This Jesus? We'll be right back.
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Good afternoon and welcome to the show. If you just climbed in your car, hope your day was good. We're talking to Jeff Verdorn and we're continuing our series on Who is This Jesus? I would say this is episode number nine. And today we're talking about being born again. Great study, Jeff. Yeah, this concept of being uh, a three-part being, body, soul, and spirit. And what does it truly mean when Jesus said, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven? And so we're just trying to understand what did he mean? And, and I believe it goes right to the heart of the nature of man, that we are body, soul, and spirit, but our spirit is dead because of Adam. In Adam, all have died, but in Christ, all will be made alive, Paul says. So that spiritual part of us is what comes alive the moment we believe and are saved. And so now, as a new believer in Christ, you are now body, soul, and with a spirit that is alive. The old self is gone, and now the new self is your, that's the new creation part of you. Now, I wanted to spend just a couple minutes describing what our battle is, because we know that when we are born again, life, we don't just live out this perfectly righteous life as saints in this world, right? We still Mm -hmm. struggle to live God's calling in our life. And so this battle is kind of described in Galatians chapter five, and it says this, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with one another so that you do not do what you want to do. Well, what's that battle? That battle is that the flesh, everything on the outside, the body. So this is the the world, the flesh, the devil, temptation, all the things that we we fix our eyes on in the world. Uh, that's all coming in through our physical senses, right? And it attracts us. James says that it pricks our desires and entices us to sin. On the other side is the spirit. The spirit, which is now united with God's spirit, that's now our inter- inner voice. Our innermost voice is now united with God. And it's telling us this is how you should live. So it's literally these two choices. Remember the old cartoons with the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other? Mm-hmm. That's kind of what it's like. And the battleground is the soul. In between the spirit, our innermost being, and the flesh is this thing called the suke, the soul, our mind and will and emotion and memories. We now have to decide which one of those voices we are going to listen to. Are you going to live by the spirit or are you going to live by the flesh? Mm-hmm. And, and Paul says that when you, if you live by the spirit— you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Mm-hmm. In the Old Testament, the Jews had an external law to guide their behavior. In the New Testament, now on this side of the cross, we have something infinitely better than a whole bunch of rules to guide us. We have the spirit of the living God dwelling within us. So if we live by the spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. No, Jeff, I just think I brought this up with another uh, unpaid guest recently. And <laughs> and I think the question was, well, if... if it, I didn't get a birthday present either, if I recall. Really? Yeah. No. I just... Yeah, no birthday present. Oh, well, 
Next year? Next year, okay. yes. So when we... Now I've completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, when we have the Holy Spirit living in us and we're talking about becoming a new creation in Christ, why aren't we more interested in in killing sin and having having us hate sin versus still being drawn to it? You know, that's probably one of my greatest questions over the last 30 years of doing this Mm -hmm. is wondering, man, Lord, why can't you transform me even more to your image so that the world just becomes a distant, faded, you know, non-existent kind of thing? It says, God says to fix your eyes on things above, to store up your treasures in heaven and not on earth. He says, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And I think of my life, and I I confess, there's too many ways that my life conforms to the patterns of this world. Mm-hmm. And I have had an, uh, a frequent prayer, Lord, transform me so that I no longer conform to the patterns of this world. But look, this struggle is the common Christian struggle. Arguably, not even Paul was able to live out his calling perfectly. So he says, for example, not that I've already obtained all this, but I press on to take hold with that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. The only one who lived the perfect Christian life in this world was Christ himself. Mm -hmm. All the rest of us, we fall short. But that's why it's so important to understand this concept that when we fall short, thank God that Romans 4 says he no longer counts our sins against us. He has washed us clean. We stand forgiven before God. We have been made righteous. He's separated our sins as far as the east is from the west, and he remembers it no more. Mm-hmm. Isn't that good news? Yeah, it's amazing. You know, I played golf with the old uh, PGA chaplain, and I, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he wrote a book called Mulligan. And I really liked it. And he said, our Christian walk is like playing golf with Jesus. Now, I'm typically not a fan of all the stories or anecdotes about playing golf with Jesus, but this one I really, really liked. And he says, it's like playing golf with Jesus. And when we fall short, when we miss the mark, which is what sin is, when we fall short and we sin, Jesus gives us a mulligan. Now, if you don't golf, A mulligan is a free do-over. It doesn't count on your score. You don't mark it. You just kind of forget that it happened, and you get another shot at it. And the fact that we stand forgiven before God is like Jesus giving us a mulligan every time we mess up. Mm. Now, here's the thing that he goes on to say, though, because that's the good news. But Paul also asks, shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? And he says, of course not. We've died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Eventually, as a Christian, you're going to want to try to play the game of golf, to live your life without taking the mulligan. Mm -hmm. I like that. But when we do mess up, we get the free mulligan. Mm -hmm. That's the battleground. Yeah. Wally Armstrong. That's it. Yeah. You just looked it up. I did look it up. Yeah. Yeah. Great book. Here's a question that just came in, Jeff. I... I'm loving this series, but it makes salvation sound complicated. How would you describe the message of salvation to someone who has never heard the gospel? Would you do it in 30 seconds, three minutes, 30 minutes, or three hours? 
All of the above. Yeah. As much time as you had. Yeah. Fill up the time that you have. Yeah. But it, let's say you had a window of three minutes. Where would you go? What, what would be the connecting dots you would go to? You know, it, it depends. If I didn't know the person, for example, we were just with a, um, out to dinner. And I do this sometimes. I wish I could say that I do this every time I want, went out to dinner. But oftentimes I'll ask our waiter or waitress if we can pray for them. I'll say something like, you know, we were going to pray for our food. Is there anything we can pray for you about? And um, it just opens up a little door. I was talking to a lady uh, at a restaurant just a couple weeks ago, and I was having a God conversation with them. And the lady came up, and I finished my point about God. And I turned to her, and I said, do you know God? And I just started right there and then. And she said, no, I don't. And so we had a conversation over the course. And now I've actually been back there a couple times, and we've had a couple more conversations. Um we were just out to dinner two nights ago, and a young lady was there. And after, sh- towards the end of the meal, she just had a sense of joy on her face. And so I, I get the bill, and I'm giving her a credit card. And I said, and I asked her, I said, "Do you know the Lord?" <laughs> That's called could, the direct approach, right? Yeah, right. And she said, "Yes, I do." Oh wow! And I said, "Wonderful." And I just had a sense that you had joy on your face. In the end, what saves us, when Jesus said you must be born again, and and we'll get here in the teachings of Jesus, by the way, you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So where we're going, salvation is actually very, very simple in the Bible. And I think in Acts, for example, the jailer, when he comes to Paul, the scene, I've got to set the scene a little bit, Paul had been arrested they're singing hymns and, and praying to God and worshiping him. And the jailer probably thinks they're nuts, but there comes an earthquake and all the doors swing open and all their chains fall off. But nobody escapes. And the jailer comes in thinking that they've all left. And Paul says, no, 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 we're still here. He was about to kill himself because the penalty for losing all your prisoners is death, by the way. So he was about to kill himself. And Paul says, no, we're still here. Stunned and shocked, the man turns to Paul and says, what must I do to be saved? Pretty simple question. Mm -hmm. The answer is even simpler. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So I don't know what I exactly said when your listener says it sounds complicated. we've, We've been describing what it means to be born again, but how you are born again is very simple. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and this was a slide I have later. We we're going to get to towards the end of the hour, but we'll do it right now. That word in the Greek, and I've, I've done this word over and over. If you know one Greek word, and I, I'm no Greek words, you know, scholar, but uh, I love to look at the Greek to glean deeper truths from Scripture. This is one of those cases that I think the fullness of the word believe comes through when you understand the Greek word. The Greek word is pistuyo. And it's a two-part definition of this word, to believe it's true and to entrust for salvation. That is what you need to do in order to be saved. Believe it's true. What? What is true? That Christ came, he died for the sins of the world according to the scriptures, he was buried, and he rose again according to the scriptures for your sin. And if you will entrust in him for your salvation, God says he will save you and save you completely and forever. And so that's a pretty simple plan of salvation. Mm, I agree. Nicely done, by the way. Mm. Well, it's a cool word. Pistuyo, by the way, in the Greek. 
So again, if you know one Greek word, know the word pistuio. So we were talking about this battle that we have and where our mind needs to be set upon. Uh, If you think about it, the New Testament is full of admonitions to the believer to put off the old self, put on the new self. Do not conform to the world, but be transformed by your mind. Do not conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance, when you were lost, but live a holy and righteous life to God. God is holy. He's called us to live holy, a separated life from the world. If your life looks like the world, you're probably not separated enough. So you need to separate yourself from the ways of the world and live for God. And this mind, this battleground of our mind, this is where the battle is. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. Romans 12 says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the world's, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Here's the problem with being a living sacrifice. If you're a Christian, you've probably come to the point in your life at at maybe a prayer meeting or maybe in a church service or whatever where you say, Lord, all that I am is yours. I'm I'm yours. I submit to you. Oh, wait a minute. Wait, wait. Oh, what's this over here? We get distracted by the things of this world. We commit to God to give him our all, and then we take some of it back because we want to live and do something on our own. Mm-hmm. And. And so I think the problem with it being a living sacrifice was we lay ourselves up on the altar of God, but then we end up crawling off and going back into the world. And it's a process, and this is a process that never ends. Like I said earlier, only Christ lived the perfect life. Everybody else has the same battle. The good news is that one day, one day, what we now see dimly will no longer be dim. And we will see Jesus face to face in glory. And then perfection will come. And this will this battle will finally go away. Mm. Or is uh, that good news? It is good news. All right, Jeff, let's take one more short break and then we'll come back and continue. Jeff Verdorn is my guest. He's right here with me in the studio. And we're continuing our, our series. We're in episode nine and it's Who is This Jesus? We'll be right back. Thanks so much for listening to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Hey, I'm Susie Larson. If you enjoy what you're finding here, consider subscribing to some of our other faith radio podcasts, like mine, for instance. You can search Susie Larson Live at myfaithradio.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hit subscribe and have a great day. Well, it's been a great hour with Jeff Verdorn. We have one more segment to go. We're talking about the teachings of Jesus, how to be born again. And Jeff, what do you say we go to some of the parables and some of the teachings because it ties into salvation? 
They they do. In fact, there's about 40 parables in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you know about 33 of them, uh, to my best count, pertain to salvation. Um, so you, 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 you understand that this was... This was the reason that Jesus came. He came into the world to save sinners, right? Paul says, of whom I am the worst. I came to seek and save that which is lost. Um, that is why Jesus came, to save people. So it's it's no doubt that most of the parables that he taught throughout his ministry relate to this idea of being saved, of salvation. And so, uh, like I said, probably I think 33 of the 40 parables relate to salvation in some, some way. So I wanted to go through those kind of, kind of briefly at a high level. So the parable of the new cloth, the old coat, the new wine in the old wineskin, and the parable of the owner of the house, they are talking about there's a new way that's here. It's a new way called grace. Before we had this law, but now that salvation has come, this old way is done, and this new way of grace has come. Several of the parables, like the parable of the hidden treasure, the parable of the valuable pearl and the unmerciful servant, all describe this price that has been paid for sin, that God has now paid the penalty for sin and opened up this new way of salvation. There are a number of salvations that describe that God desires all to be saved. So when you look in in Luke, for example, in Luke 15, there's these three parables in in a row, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, the prodigal son. All of these are describing that God wishes none to perish. He will go after every single one. The friend in need or the persistent friend in the great banquet also described the same thing, that God desires all to be saved. And that God offers salvation to whosoever. So we have the parable of the two debtors in Luke 7. And in Matthew 20, we have the parable of the, of the workers in the field. And I think those show that, that God um, offers salvation to whosoever. And then we get to salvation itself. And that there are two ways. There is the way of salvation unto life eternal. And there's a way to condemnation. So when you look at the sheep and the goats, which actually is not a parable, by the way, but we won't go there right now. The parable of the weeds, the parable of the net, there's good fish and there's bad fish. The parable of the wedding banquet, the faithful servants and the wise servants, the 10 virgins. So remember, there was five wise virgins and five foolish virgins, virgins. the watchful servants, the the parable of the tenants, the blind guides, the two roads is a perfect example. The, the narrow gate that leads to eternal life versus the broad road and the wide gate that leads to destruction. The wise and foolish builder, the parable of the two sons, the unfruitful fig tree, and the seat at the feast and the, even the Pharisee and the tax collector. This is all showing Jesus is using these parables to show his audience that there are two ways two destinies, two paths, and you need to decide which path do you want to be on. Do you want to be on the narrow gate and the narrow road that leads to everlasting life through faith in Jesus Christ? Or do you want to be on the wide road to destruction for those who don't believe, who are separated from God and won't be saved? I love, 
I, I want in our, in our last couple minutes, I want to go into a little detail on the parable of the valuable pearl and the parable of the hidden treasure, just really quick, because this is often taught, the parable of the fine pearl. A man sees this pearl, it's of, of great value, so he sells all of his possessions and he buys this pearl, right? Well, a lot of people say, well, that parable is about the, the pearl is the kingdom of heaven, and that the man sells everything that he has in order to get the kingdom of heaven, this pearl. Well, well, wait a minute. Can we buy the kingdom of heaven? Is it a requirement of us that we need to sell our possessions in order to buy into the kingdom of heaven? I thought scripture specifically says that you can't buy into the kingdom of heaven. So the parable says that there was a man and he bought this treasure, this pearl. Well, we assume, or most common, many commentators, I should say, assume that the man is us and that we are buying the kingdom of heaven. But I want to turn this around for a second. What if the man is Jesus himself? The man is Jesus who gave up everything, who gave up even his life to buy what? To buy people. People, I think, are the pearl of great value. Revelation says that Jesus, who is the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, paid for with his blood the price to buy, purchase men for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The only purchasing that's going on in the scripture is not us buying into the kingdom, but it's Christ paying the price for our redemption, for mankind's redemption. So I think the fine pearl is people that Jesus paid for their price to redeem them from sin. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Makes sense. It does, doesn't it? You have to think about that one, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's it's one of these things that has been taught so often that way, and we need to turn it on its head. Turn the man into Jesus who bought men for God from every tribe and tongue, and people, and nation. By the way, the other one, the hidden treasure, comes right after this. And again, it's commonly taught that the hidden treasure is salvation. It's the kingdom of heaven. And what happens? The man goes and he finds a treasure in a field, but he hides it and then goes and purchases the land. And then he gets the treasure that's in the land that he now bought. Well, well wait a minute here. And it, I, I, I didn't take too many law classes in college, but isn't that fraud? No, I think so. If you found a treasure in somebody's field and then hide it and then go buy it from them and you don't tell them that it's there or anything, that's kind of, you're, you're being deceitful at, at least. Yeah. And, and is that how we get or obtain the kingdom of heaven? I, I don't think so. So what treasure has been hidden in the land that one day is going to be discovered or revealed? And I think the treasure represents Israel. God specifically calls Israel the treasure, his treasure, that were hidden in the land. Remember, Israel was dispersed from their land and hidden in the world and now is being gathered back to their land. But one day, Jesus is going to go and take that treasure. He is going to save Israel. Romans 11 says that basically when Jesus returns at the second coming, 
all Israel will be saved. Jesus says, our, our, our God says in Hebrews 10 that on that day when he comes, he will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah on that day when he takes away their sins. There is a future salvation for the nation of Israel. They are the treasure. They were hidden in the world, but now one day the man is going to come and get that treasure. And I think that's Israel. So once again, we turn the man into Christ. And I think those parables make more sense. And it's about salvation. Um, the We don't have time to do the last one, the parable of the sower I was going to do, but that's a big one. And I don't have time to do that. So Jesus, so the bottom line is, the bottom line is 33 out of the 40 parables that Jesus taught pertain to this subject which is salvation, which is why he said, this is why he came. Luke 19, 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and saved that which is lost. That's why Jesus came. Great study, Jeff. You know, I have really good source material. Mm-hmm. It's the Word of God. And I, it, Amen. It will, transform, it will transform people when you study it and you, and you learn it. And uh, I think that's what we try to do here every every single time, right? That's my goal. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for uh, this time and this hour of study. I'm going to go back and listen to it a second time because I enjoy it so much. I hope you had a great uh, day today, and I hope also hope you enjoyed the show, and I hope you grew in your faith and encouraged you in who you are in Christ. And if you are new to the faith, this has got to be thrilling because you are learning exactly who you are in Christ. So thank you so much for spending time with me today. And I hope you have a great evening and I'll see you tomorrow. Have a great night. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.